the Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Cleveland defense lawyer Ian Friedman got a new grip on life after he lost his arm in a motorcycle accident in 2011. Ian is a criminal defense lawyer who's been known as a bulldog and sometimes a bulldozer in his efforts to seek justice. He's also a gentle soul who treats every client as if that person were his own family member. Ian is founding partner of Friedman and Nemechek LLC. He has served as chief legal counsel on behalf of individuals and entities all over the country and as far as Europe, Asia, and South America. He's also an adjunct professor of law at the Cleveland Marshall College of Law teaching cybercrime. And he's a good friend you want on your side when times get tough. Ian, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Regina. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Well, Ian, you've been just such a force for good in the Cleveland community and your work as a lawyer. But what I love is you bring such humanity to law. And I think lawyers get such a bad rap for just going after money and victories. And you have always been about sort of the soul of law. That's really, uh, that's very kind. There's a lot to it. There's a lot of depth to what we do. And I, I think it's very easy to just see case captions and look at people as a number and kind of herding people through this giant system. Uh, I think that everyone really needs to take the time to sit down and, and never forget who's being processed through the system. And for me, the best part of it is when I sit down with my clients and I get to see all, all of the good, because I don't think it's fair to define anyone by you know one instance uh, in their life. And it's important then as a defense attorney to kind of give that picture of who that person is and, and really, yeah, put that on the canvas um, and, and make sure that the court or a jury knows that that's a real person with a real story and a, and a family and, you know, everything else. So it's, there's a lot to it. Yeah. You know, most of us think we'll never need a criminal defense lawyer because we think we're good law abiding people, but we might have people in our lives that make a mistake or they go off, veer off the path and I've always loved that. It's like, okay, I know I've got Ian if that ever happens, because as a police officer once taught me to take away someone's freedom is the most powerful thing you can do as an officer, whether it's by use of force because you have to defend your own life or by just arresting somebody to put somebody in handcuffs to take that freedom. I remember him saying that, and I never thought of the idea of freedom. We think of freedom as some grand concept as Americans, but that actual freedom of like your being able to walk away from an incident or to walk out of a jail. And that's something you deal with every day. That makes Yeah, sense. and so the way that I practice and the way that all of my lawyers from day one, I tell them, uh, is you have to recognize what's at stake, right? Because just as you said, if you're not touched by the criminal justice system, you really don't get it. And we hear all of this like loss of freedom and wrongful convictions, but well, that stuff's real. And so what I tell all my folks is you have to look at every single case and handle it the same way that you were hoping expect a case to be handled if it were your own child. And when you're able to put yourself in that sort of scenario where you realize how important it is, that's the only way that you should be going forward because yeah, we are dealing with the most serious of the serious. Well, Ian, we'll get more into law, but I really want to get into really the biggest detour in your life. And you allowed me to, to write about it years ago, pretty close after it happened, which I am grateful for that. Tell us about the accident you have that changed your life and probably has changed every day since back in 2011. 
Yeah. So, you know, I was really happy uh, when you reached out uh, to do this podcast because we're actually coming up on the 10 year anniversary. So June 17th, 2011, uh, I was leaving the office. Uh, I had just gotten on uh, a motorcycle, which is a story uh, to its own. I was going down the highway and, and that changed uh, my life forever. I'll tell you how I got on the motorcycle. I was coming back from Columbus just a few days earlier. Uh, I was in the middle of a, a rough divorce, if there's such a thing as a good divorce, I, I don't know. But And I was on the phone with my lawyer and I said, you know, I want to get a convertible. It was kind of the therapy that I needed. Uh, and she told me that you can't do that. It'll show that you make too much money and all of that. At that very moment, I saw a sign on the side of 71 uh, for a Harley Davidson dealership uh, in Delaware, Ohio. And Regina, that's all the thought that went into it. I said to her, what about a Harley? And she said, fine, as long as you don't spend, you know, anything above this. I walked in knowing nothing about them. I looked at one. I said, that looks nice. Can I take it for a ride? They said, no, not unless you buy it. And that was it. They delivered it at home. And I knew that I shouldn't get on that. I just knew it. I had a bad feeling. And I actually called the dealership couple of days later. And I said, well, you guys buy this back. And they said, sure. And they offered me 50 cents on the dollar. Fine. I decided on June 17, 2011, to just see what all the hype was about and take that motorcycle out one time on the highway. And that's all it took was, was the one time. And, and it's been a 10 year journey since. So, you know, Ian, when you frame it that way, we've all had those kind of turning points where I don't know. Sometimes you just go through something in life where you just look for something outside to make something go away or feel better, whatever. And every so often you get that little gut feeling or that little angel that says, don't do it. And most of us don't listen, to be honest, but we usually don't have a consequence. And, and not so much a consequence, but I think life just wanted you on a different path and, and, and you ended up on it in a way that, you know, hopefully you've recovered in a way that it hasn't derailed your life, but it's kind of like recreated your life. It sounds like. Yeah. Prior to the accident, you know, as you described uh, as kind of the bulldog bulldozer, life was moving extremely fast. I mean, I was just going through life and, and things were going well. I mean, if you looked at life on paper, you'd say GE is doing really well, but I can't tell you in hindsight now that I was really appreciating everything that was happening. Uh, I was just flying through. When I hit the guardrail, so what happened was I was getting off the exit. It was no one's fault but mine. I just didn't know how to ride, and I, I leaned the wrong way, and I shot across um, kind of incoming traffic, and I hit a metal guardrail uh, and rolled on top of it for about uh, 100, 100 feet, um, and, you know, the posts on the guardrail just ripped up every part of my body, and um, it slowed everything down to a point where I've learned more in the last 10 years about myself and life than I did in the four years prior. I just turned 50. I remember when you first reached out to me to write about this. I remember what you said to me too. I don't know if you recall, but you said, Ian, I heard about the accident. I said, yeah. And, and we talked for a second. You said, but the, what interested you was the fact that you had heard, and I don't know where, if it was around the courthouse or where, but that I was saying it was a good thing. And, and one would have to question, how can that be a good thing? My neck was ripped open, my arm was no longer working, every bone in my body had been shattered. 
the pain, which we'll get into in a moment, how could that be a good thing? And I'm glad when I read your article in anticipation of us speaking today, I'm happy to report that what I said then is exactly what I feel today. It was the best thing. It wasn't just a good thing, Regina. It was the very best thing that ever happened to me because as I said then, I got a second crack at life and it's been wonderful ever since. Hard, very, very hard. The pain's been tough, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. And you were conscious. I mean, you remember, you remember being on the bike and you remember the whole incident. Yeah, so I remember everything as though it happened this morning. And it's, wow. it's, it's wild. I remember going down the shoreway. I remember hearing a voice in my head saying, get off the road, get off the road. I knew it. And then I got off that exit as it merges on uh, towards 271. And I remember coming, going across the grass. I remember the car coming to the left side, just going just in front of its hood. As I kind of got up to the side of the guardrail, I remember taking my left leg and trying to kick off the guardrail. And then I remember laying uh, in the speed lane. My head was in the, the berm. My feet were out in the speed lane. And I remember it so clearly that I remember the gravel under the back of my head. I can remember how that sounded. I remember the blue of the sky. I remember the breeze and the temperature. It, it's as if it's really just scarred in my brain. I remember the two gentlemen that were on the sides of me, the Euclid police officer who came. It happened a moment ago and it's been with me a moment ago ever since. Uh, it occurred truly 10 years ago. It's there, it doesn't leave me. And every decision I've ever made since, I always say comes from the roadside. Wow, that is so powerful. And you also had doctors that stopped. I mean, you were lucky that the people that showed up instantly were people that knew what to do. Yeah, and so both gentlemen were there and I remember someone uh, stopped the traffic and so forth. And all I could do on the side of the road was I, I couldn't really speak because and I didn't know why, I thought I was dying. I later learned it was because my ribs had gone into my lungs. All I could do was take some breaths in and then get one word out. So I would say, am I dying? And I kept asking that over and over and over and they kept saying, no, you're not. But I remember thinking to myself, well, what else are they gonna say? And, and so- <laughs> I laugh because you're right. I mean, no one's gonna say yes, probably. Right, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and I knew that there was something very wrong because, you know, my left shoulder was so swelled up. It was almost past my face. I couldn't see. And I remember asking if I had an arm, you know, my fingers were everywhere. My foot was, the bottom of my foot was, you know, off in another direction. So I knew something was wrong. And the one thing that I kept telling myself, and I, you know, I guess there were a couple of things that really came from that. Number one, the lessons that came from it which I'm certainly happy to talk about. But number two, you know, I went upstairs for a while that day and that really changed everything for me. As I sat there, I kept telling myself, I was talking to myself in the third person, just saying, Ian, don't close your eyes, don't close your eyes. Cause I knew if I closed my eyes, I was done. And I remember the Euclid police officer kind of walking over to this side of me. And I remember hearing someone saying that, you know, he bled out, um, you know, and, and, and so forth. And then I remember my eyes closing. And sure enough, at that time is when I started to float up. And I saw my daughter's face, who was three years old at the time. 
And I remember clearly as I do the gravel and the blue of the sky, trying to grab at her face. And as I got higher than my daughter, I turned and I was kicking down, like almost like swimming to hold on to her. I went up higher, uh, past the clouds. And when I got up there, the experience I had uh, was, it was very peaceful. Uh, and there was like a room in the back where I knew there were a lot of people. And my grandfather who had died some 25 years earlier came out and he was wearing a three-piece tweed suit and came out and he said, uh, you know, McGee, cause that was my nickname as a little boy. Uh, he told me he was fine. He looked great. Uh, he said that he was just waiting for my grandma. Uh, and he said, McGee, it's not your time to go yet, kid. And he gave me a little kick in the butt and I shot back down. And so the lessons that have come from it, Regina, are I don't have any fear of death at all, at all. Wow, that's powerful. But the lesson, the greater lesson for me is that uh, what is our purpose here? And the greatest lesson that I took away from the roadside was that the biggest crime uh, in life is wasted time. And that is what I strive not to do is waste time. And, you know, we all have our different definitions of what that is. But for me, it, it just meant I don't waste time, you know, bad people, bad places. If I'm with folks, it's got to be quality people who contribute. And it doesn't, you know, I, I really grasp to those that are good folks, you know, and, and there's just the quality of life has, has just been wonderful ever since knowing that I'm not wasting time and, um, and I have a lot to do yet. So I could go on and on and on, but I'll, I'll stop until whatever you want to ask. Well, it's so powerful that one, that you can remember all this and, ex and that experience has been imprinted so deeply, but to have that moment of clarity that you see your daughter and you see your grandfather who's passed and you have that moment of, do I go, do I stay? And that, that has shaped the rest of your life. What it, I mean, that alone is a, a rare gift. Yeah, it is. And, and it's a great gift. Um, and I, I have to respect that gift, you know, by just doing the right thing. And, and that, it's pretty simple. I have to tell you that what happened simplified life greatly. It really did, because as they put me on the gurney and they put me into the, uh, into the ambulance, I remember looking back to the side of the road and one of the last images that I had looking at the road, it'll be very hard for me to kind of articulate what I saw, but I can tell you what it, it stood for. And what it was, was all of the stuff, the, the little, the garbage, the stuff that we kind of chain ourselves with and we carry around. And when you look back, you say to yourself, really, why, why did I allow that to bother me so much? Why did I carry all that stuff around with me? And that was left at the road. So I don't, you know, some people may say at times, my wife might say at times, uh, you know, you don't take things seriously. I take things so seriously that I have to let go of the things that I shouldn't. And, and so sometimes I'll laugh at things that maybe pre-accident would have seemed like such big deals because uh, it's really not. And, and what, is, what is important is so simple today. I love that you take things so seriously that you probably don't take most things that seriously. It's, it's kind of a twist to that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Now it hasn't been easy. I mean, you left that side of the road and you've had a lot of healing and a lot of uh, surgery, a lot of pain. Can you kind of uh, 
tell us through that journey with your arm. You, you know, to look at you, you see you have an arm, but your arm isn't able to move. You aren't able to use it. And it has caused great pain. What have you done to kind of heal your body to where you are today? Yeah, so you're right. The arm is there, but you know, you can see me. I, the only way it moves is if I grab it with my other arm. It has been extremely painful. When I left Metro Health Hospital, where I was first brought, because that's our, you know, was the trauma one center at the time, uh, they told me what to expect. And they said, look, you need to know that the pain is going to be similar to if you've ever touched a hot frying pan or if you put your hand uh, in a vat of hot frying oil, but it stays there. And I said, there's no way. You know, I, I get that you're telling me that, but no one could live with that. Regina? They were so spot on with that. It is a pain that is unimaginable. When someone goes fishing, if they pull the fish up on the dock and you see it flopping around on the dock, that's literally what it would do to my body as I'd be laying down on a couch or wherever on the floor bed, just arching my back, wanting to, to bite down so hard that your teeth would almost break. It's the worst pain you can possibly imagine. And this went on for years and years and years and you can imagine how exhausting it was. Um, I had been to specialists all over. I had gone and gotten uh, nerve transfers for maybe future use. There's not going to be any future use. Every, all five nerves to the, to the right arm have been pulled out. So I'm fine with that. But early on, I had reached out to a doctor in uh, Colorado who had, uh, was known for a, a procedure called a DREZ, like D-R-E-Z. And what that was, was a way um, to stop this sort of nerve pain. And I called them and I said, you know, what do you think? And long story short, they said, look, we usually don't talk to folks like you so soon after the accident, because I said that that sounds like a horrific process. Mm -hmm. uh, they said most people reach back at us when they reach their breaking point. And for me, that breaking point was about three years ago. I decided that I well, I'll tell you, I got very scared. I was very scared because I have a very strong mind and will and, and so forth. And I tried everything, but I felt my mind turning on me. And there's a small group of us with this injury called brachial plexus root avulsions. And we talk on, on a listserv and every couple of weeks, there's one less of us because they can't take that pain anymore. Right. And I had just lost a friend who had similar nerve pain right. and I felt my head turning. And I just knew that I couldn't take a chance that tomorrow was going to be too late where I couldn't recover from it. Right, right. So I reached out to a doctor uh, in Chicago uh, and we went there and the surgery, they literally take a saw and they go through, if you saw in the back from the bottom of my skull, about third of the way down my back, they go through the back, through the uh, vertebrae, they split it open so that the spinal cord is exposed and then they burn it. And Pretty horrific, as you can imagine. Now, to understand the sort of pain that I was in to get me to do that, the chances of it working are 25%. Oh my God. And 25% means that it's just a reduction in pain. 3% means it gets rid of all of your pain, so 3% chance. But here's, here's the downside. 75% means you're going to lose some sort of function in your left leg and bladder control. All right, so no one would go to a casino thinking that well, I got great odds at 25%, right? Yeah. The night before the surgery, my family flew out to Chicago. My wife was beside herself, as you can imagine. And I knew I was ready for it because I said, Jamie, I said, uh, listen to me, if I wake up tomorrow and I, I'm in a wheelchair with a diaper, 
but I have a little less pain and I'm going to be happier. So I knew I was ready to go. And uh, believe it or not, someone was looking down on me because I fell in that 3%. I don't have any pain uh, right now. And uh, so how can I say that? So I'm supposed to be doing something because I've been given too many chances now. So you got a new life. You created a new life with, you met somebody. Tell us about yeah. your, your new partnership here with your wife. Sure. So, you know, it's great. Um, uh, Jamie, my wife, um, we've been married now five years and uh, we met about a little more than a year after the accident. And I have to tell you, when I say that the accident was the best thing to happen, there's no way she'll, she, she would tell you this too, if she, if she were here with us, there's no way she would have given me time of day before the accident. No way. Everyone, all my friends would always say to her, you sure you know what you're getting into? Because they only remember the end beforehand. That was like you said, going through the wall, you know? And so it's, it's just been perfect. So I met Jamie and, and uh, my daughter's doing wonderfully now. My relationship with her is so much more sound and I'm there as a dad, instead of just being kind of the, not missing anything. Let me say that. Right. Jamie and I have had uh, two boys uh, since then. So, so here I am just turning 50. I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. I can't believe it. And a two-year-old during a pandemic, no less. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's been something, but it's been a great life. It's not a life that I would have ever thought I could have had. Um, it's not a life I could have designed. Um, and had it not been for the accident, I would have been moving too fast to have even received. And so it's just been a beautiful thing. And look, it hurts. There's no question. You know, everyone has their struggles. So I don't go around complaining about it because I have to constantly keep my message strong in my head. You know, and but what people don't see is, you know, like if I finish court, or I finish a meeting, I'll have to go in my office sometimes and take a nap. Or, you know, I, I asked Jamie this morning before coming to you, I said, you know, Jamie, have I wasted time since we've known each other eight plus years? And she said, well, you do lay down a lot. You do sleep a lot. That's different. I always want to make that clear to people. Okay. That's not the wasted time that, that I spoke of. Because that's what I have to do to make sure that my body is healthy, that my mind is sound, that I can combat at times um, the challenges that my body presents. So that's positive mm -hmm. for me, but I'm happy to report that I don't waste any time today um, at all. And um, yeah, so it's, it's been good. And, and the pleasure of the small things, you know, one of the other things that you asked me about way back when I was talking to you about how I had just learned to tie my tie, you know, and with one hand, that's hard. Well, I still am taking joy and finding like the little things, you know, it's funny. You could ask me, what'd you do last week? That was all big. And I could tell you all those things, but the thing that stands out most for me about last week was I found the perfect winter coat because it comes from the left side. It has snaps here. It has the perfect pocket <laughs> for my right arm. It has everything I need to make life simple. And I found the perfect pair of slip-on boots. That's actually, there's no way I would have ever thought about that stuff prior to June 17, 2011. And uh, so what can I say? I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. Well, yeah, thanks for sharing that part of your story. Well, we're past the halfway mark. I just want to pause and thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guests, 
uh, criminal defense lawyer, Ian Friedman. I know you have many podcast choices and I'm grateful you chose to listen to mine. And, and Ian, I just um, really am grateful that you're able to share this. You know, I know there's so much trauma around it, but um, the idea that every day to button a shirt, to shave yourself, all those things you do differently and probably more mindfully. And I think that might be the greatest gift is that kind of mindful living that you can't run too fast in life because the lack of your arm use makes you be in that moment longer. It does. Everything has to be done with thought. You're right. You said shaving everything down to razor blades, everything. There's not a single thing. How you open a jar. Um, yeah. yeah. All, all of these things are there, but we're human, right? We all have our stories, you know, and I don't mind today letting people know I'm human. I have found that when I ask a perfect stranger to help me put on my coat, they're happy to do it. We all walk around, I think, for the most part, wanting to do right and, and connect with others. And I've seen the very best in people as a result of going and, and showing them how I'm human, what struggles I have and asking for help sometimes. I like being human today. My daughter, 13 now, she and I, last year, we took a, a drive out to Utah and we went to the state parks and went hiking. I do have terrible PTSD from the heights, from the, um, uh, the life flight after the, the accident. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard for me to drive if there's a, a big drop off on the side of the road, someone else drive. Um, when we went to uh, the state park, uh, my daughter and I, I couldn't walk down the hill uh, because I was so scared of falling. If anyone else looked at it, they would have realized the path is probably 20 feet wide. You're not falling. But for me, I saw it. It looked like a tightrope and I just saw certain death. And it was great. My daughter and I, we stayed there for two and a half days. The first day I took 15 steps and then I clung to the wall. I talked to the park ranger that night. How many people have died? How many people have fallen? I think I made, I probably took three years off his life, you know, by asking him, you know, growing up with all these questions. That third day, I made it down. I had the best time. This is what I have to do, you know? And, and so my kids have seen lessons from me that I would never have even been in a position to impart upon them. This is a different type of fathering, different sort of life experience. It's powerful. It really is powerful. You know, Ian, you just mentioned about wanting to do right. And, and I want to talk a little bit about two things, your law work and being Jewish, because you grew up at a time where, I mean, there's so much anti-Semitism still, but it was so much more acceptable to be that way when you were growing up. And I wondered how that shaped your sense of kind of justice and your place as a Jewish man in the world, how being yeah. Jewish shaped you to kind of fight for the rights for others. Yeah, no, I... Thank you for bringing that up. It really comes from a tough place in me. We, although I was born in Queens, New York, we moved uh, out to a very rural uh, mountain town in Colorado before Colorado was kind of a cool place to be. Uh, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism. Um, that's an understatement uh, as well. And growing up almost on a daily basis, uh, I was subjected to it uh, being only one of uh, two Jewish families in the whole uh, county. Uh, and so it would not be uh, out of the ordinary to have someone, um, you know, Heil Hitler sort of things, uh, Jew boy this, Jew boy that, punch me in the face, getting off on the bus to fight the Jew. It was all of these things every day uh, of my life. And it was, it was 
it was a terrible way to grow up. It's not the way that I would have wanted to uh, have done that. And it did shape me because I don't like bullies. It's tough. There's a lot to that answer because being Jewish, also just wanting to seek justice. We all do though. But just having been kind of the on the other side of being bullied because of just who I was, I think that's what compels me today. I feel more comfortable with the underdog. I feel more comfortable with the person who's being targeted because of something that's out of their control, because of just who they are, not something that they may have done, just who they are. And it put a lot of fight in me because today I have a voice that can help those who do not. And so I just feel that I'm obligated to kind of hold their hand and, and, and walk through it with them. And it's, it is interesting because, you know, just as I remember the accent, I, how do we don't forget our upbringings. We don't forget how we were raised in our experience as kids. And I remember that all the time too, you know, it's, that was traumatic also. Um, so there's a, there's a lot there. It's just life experience where I just want to protect those who need it. So when you were a kid, I mean, you were all about justice, even in grade school. I think your mom videotaped you, you know, arguing against the death penalty. You were on the debate team. I mean, it's sort of in the fiber of your being to be that kind of fighter for others. Yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, I was fourth grade. And it's funny you said that because my mother just sent me the article. My mother has kept everything. So it was a little newspaper article from Sedalia, Colorado, uh, of me arguing against the death penalty in the fourth grade. Yes, I always wanted to be in the criminal justice system, but I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor until I came here to law school uh, and just happened to fall into the role of criminal defense lawyer. Uh, and it was it was the right fit. I knew that on day one because I, I just feel like I said, it's people need the greatest help there. When you're, when someone's the target of a prosecution, it's them, it's this one person versus this mighty system. And it's overwhelming and it's exhausting. Uh, it takes its toll on you. And why would anyone wanna do that? You know, I tell my students all the time that true criminal defense lawyers, you know, when asked, why do you wanna do this? It's the ones who say, I'm not really sure. They just kind of feel like they were called to it. Those are the ones who will last in this business because it's tough when you're dealing with people's lives and you have to go to sleep at night saying, did I do everything I could for this person? God forbid you make a mistake that would have prevented somebody from maybe being able to hug their kids again outside of a you know confinement setting. It's tough. But if you have inside of you that history where you have that fight in you, you do it. You just do it. You know, I often hear people who probably don't understand the law or the Constitution talk about how can a criminal defense attorney represent somebody who did something so horrible or who's accused of something so horrible? And, you know, in our Constitution, we're guaranteed an, a, the right to an attorney uh, to, re to have somebody represent us. And to me, if if attorneys would say no because something's distasteful, then we lose that constitutional protection. And I wonder for you, what do you say to people when they say, gosh, how could you do what you do? Like you're representing people who are guilty or who've done bad things. Yeah, so that's kind of the, the most common question asked of a criminal defense lawyer. And the answer is this. I think that that question always anticipates that everyone we represent is guilty, right? And it gets to like the, the worst scenario. So let me just say that it, it is not common 
that we have the person who comes in and says, yes, I did it, and you still have to get me out of this. Now, does that happen? Sure. In that instance, we're not advocating for what they did or who they are, but what we are doing is we are honoring the fact that there are protections in place, the Constitution, to make sure the system works, that everybody does their part, the prosecution, the defense, everyone, because we rely upon precedent in the law, right? And so if we allow kind of the, this, the protections to be degraded merely because of the heinous nature of the case, those protections will not be in place next time. More common, however, than that scenario that we just discussed are the people who made a mistake or people who did something and then it turns into making sure the punishment fits the crime or they're getting the treatment they need. Our system is not clear cut. It's not black and white that this was done, here, therefore this is the solution. It calls for creativity. It calls for really looking at the person and tailoring a just outcome. And that's really what we do is we seek just outcomes. And, and so that question is a very kind of precise sliver of what we do. So I, I, hope, I hope that answers. No, that's, that's good. I love that a just outcome because it isn't just you know, people think it's guilt or innocence. It's like, is there enough evidence you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, there's so much more to law than the TV shows kind of reveal. But we just have a minute, and I, I want to get to one thing that I'm just so proud that you did, and I was so proud to be part of, and that was fighting for open discovery in the state of Ohio. It used to be that the prosecutors could hide evidence, they could not put to get, put a forward police documents, uh, defense attorneys didn't even have all the information to represent a client. Tell us why you, you took on that fight. So that was uh, about 2005 when that fight began. And, and yes, you were a great partner in that effort. So I thank you again, and I can't thank you enough. You're exactly right. It was not fair. As a young lawyer, I'm walking into these rooms, and I'm seeing that the government has all of this information the defendant didn't have. You're accused of the crime, and you don't know all the information until you get to trial. So we used to remember we called it trial by ambush, and it was. it was. It was too much gamesmanship. You had wrongful convictions. There's no such thing as a wrongful exoneration, but there was no consistency in what was going on, and it just wasn't right. I guess at the end of the day, Regina, the answer is the way I'm guided today, what's right is right, what's wrong is wrong. That was wrong. Decided it needed to be fixed. It took a number of years. It was a Herculean effort. Uh, and today, the criminal justice system is so much better for it. We can see what cases are. We can talk to our clients. We can give stuff to the prosecutors ahead of time that they should be considering that they didn't even get from us. Because maybe sometimes the first time they learned of it was in trial. And had they known beforehand, they wouldn't have wanted to go to trial. So it's really taken the gamesmanship. It's streamlined things. It's been more fair. It gives greater public confidence. And... I remember shortly thereafter being at a banquet where there was a recognition of the award and one of my relatives just kind of looked and said, if you do nothing else in this profession, you made your mark. And, and I was glad I, you know, uh, that you were there uh, with us because you brought a dynamic to it, the, the public attention to it um, that you as a journalist um, could do. And, and the effort, putting aside the, the rule, the effort that went into it was such a model that can be used for other positive change, whatever that may be. And, uh, and yeah, I'm glad if, if life were to end 
today. I'm satisfied just on no. that alone. That's so powerful to hear you say that, Ian Freeman, because uh, I felt that way as a journalist. You know, I've written hundreds and hundreds of columns and articles, but I went after that open discovery because so many people on death row are there because evidence was hid or police records weren't given to the defense attorneys, on and on. And I remember writing columns and we collected over 10,000 signatures. And this is before Facebook was big and the internet was as big as it is now. You could probably do that in a day, but it was a lot of work and a lot of resistance from local prosecutors. And yet there were prosecutors who got on board, good people who said, the law has to have a purity about it. It's not about winning. It's not just about victories on notches on your belt. It's about what is right. So I'm just so glad you led that fight. We changed that criminal law in Ohio and uh, criminal rule. And we did. We left a mark. And, and I'm glad you let me be part of that. So thank you. Well, it was, my, it was absolutely my pleasure. And, you know, just to circle it back, when we talk about presenting a narrative to people that they can't disagree with, Maybe that's what we should be doing today, I guess, is really focusing on the narratives where people can't disagree. Because what we said was at the time, what are the things people can't disagree with? And they were that everyone deserves fair process. Right. And once everyone was presented with that, no one could disagree. And you're right. Everyone from all sides of the aisle, prosecutors, everyone jumped on board. And uh, uh, so it was, it was a wonderful thing. It's something that uh, we'll always have with us, yeah. That's right. Well, Ian, I want to thank you for joining us. And the best way to reach you, you have a website, ianfriedman.com. Yeah, so Ian N. Friedman. There is an Ian Friedman who is squatting on my name for the last 15 years. So I had to use my middle initial uh, as well. So ianfriedman.com. Yeah. All right. And I'll have a link to that at my website, reginabrett.com. You know, my biggest takeaway when you said the biggest crime in life is wasted time. Wow, that is so true. I want to close with your answer to this question, Ian. What is the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? That's a great question. And I would say that I stop to say thank you. Mm. I do. I, I stop, I'll pause, however fast the day may be going or however late it is when I want to go to bed, I'll hit my knees. And it might be a really bad day, a day that I would never want repeated. And I say, thank you for this day. That's it. There you go. Thank you, Ian, so much for sharing with us. Thanks, Regina. It's my pleasure, my honor. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter, so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.